Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in Los Angeles, California, the third stop on this Seneca Golden State Tour. My guest today is Alex Wong, professor of law at UCLA and a friend of 20 years now. Alex, 20 years now, yeah. That's true. Wow. Uh, From back in Beijing days. Uh, Among other things, he was Jeremy's landlord for a couple of years. That's true, too. (laughs) Uh, And and, uh, had a fleeting career as a rock guitarist in Wuhan, which I think is one of the main things we have in common, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Alex is one of the most highly regarded experts on China's climate and environmental policy, and he's just back from Madrid, where COP25 was held, and is flying out in just a few hours to Beijing, so it's a good thing I caught him here today. Uh, And we have lots to talk about regarding China's progress in its challenges in reducing carbon emissions. So, Alex, welcome back to Seneca, man. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. Uh, And thank you for inviting me into your lovely home. Absolutely. Uh, let's start with your recent trip to Madrid for COP25, so COP, Conference of Parties to the UN Convention on, on Climate Change. This year, I think most of you probably know it was originally planned to be held in Santiago in Chile, but it was, you know, there's the global uprising against neoliberalism and all that, so yay, Lebanon's out and Santiago's out. So right. they moved it to Madrid. Um, well, explain first of all, for our listeners, what COP25 in Madrid was all about. Right. Okay. So... So again, thanks for having me, Kaiser. Um, as you mentioned, I just got back from uh, the the Madrid COP25 ended this weekend. Uh, COP25, basically, it's the meeting of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was passed in the early 90s. It's the main way that all the countries of the world get together and talk about how to solve climate change. This is the 25th uh, meeting. And uh the short story of this meeting in Madrid was that it was widely viewed as a failure, a failure to set up uh, sort of a common understanding about the ambition needed to solve the problem. Uh, and I'd be happy to talk about sort of the, the background of that. Um, but um, 
it might be useful to for, for those who aren't following the climate negotiations to give a little bit of background. Just you know, what is this convention? Yeah, yeah. How does the whole thing work? What were our expectations? These types of things. Right? Yeah, that, so, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Please. So, um, so the uh, the UN convention that was passed in the early nineties uh, sets a goal to for the countries of the world to deal with the potential risks of climate change, but it doesn't have a lot of detail as to to how to do that. Uh, so the first major push to do this was the Kyoto Protocol, which was a, uh, in some ways a, a conventional environmental treaty where there were targets for some countries uh, and uh, potential penalties for not meeting those targets. And, and the basic setup back then was that developed countries who were seen to be responsible for climate change had targets the U.S., Europe, uh, Japan, other countries, and the developing countries who were not seen to have been the contributors to the problem did not have any binding targets at all. So you might, might recall that the U.S. didn't join the Kyoto Protocol, and part of the reason that they cited was that uh, major emitters uh, who were developing countries like uh, China were not um, subject to binding targets. Right. So that uh, was... Uh, Agreed to Reminds of the year of the. So this was the late '90s that it was agreed to, but didn't didn't come into effect until the early 2000s. Right, um, and so um, that then was subsequently replaced by the Paris Agreement, which uh, was uh, agreed to in 2015. Right, and uh, the Paris Agreement, the, the the Kyoto Protocol, did not get us really anywhere near where we needed to go. Uh, everyone was looking for a different approach uh, in the Paris Agreement. The approach is, uh, in, in concept, quite different than the Kyoto Protocol. So if you would think of Kyoto Protocol as having narrow participation but with hard targets, what they attempted to do in Paris was to have broad participation, basically to get every country in the world in, um, very importantly, China and other major emitters. But the compromise was that what's actually legally binding the Paris Agreement is is procedural, is that you have agreed that you will submit a plan as to what you want to do. But that plan, uh, they're called NDCs, National Determined Contributions, and these are essentially each country's own determination of what they can do. And then the way it's supposed to work is by a, a so-called ratchet effect, where every few years um, countries have to submit new plans, there's transparency, and then that sort of peer pressure of everyone knowing what you're doing is supposed to push us towards the agreement. So the reason that what was going on, part of what was going on in Madrid was that people were hoping that there would be ambitious things said in the run up to next year, right. which is the year when the countries are submitting uh, are uh, have the opportunity to submit their plans. And countries can actually submit more ambitious plans at any time, but next year is one of the the milestones. Where, next year is Glasgow, right? In Glasgow, yeah. And so, what the one of the big disappointments was that there were attempts to put in language uh, calling you know agreement that there would be big ambition in the next year, and no, and the countries could not agree to not even that, not even an That's agreement right. on language to say that we will be more ambitious That's next right. year. Yeah. I mean, so, primarily, the, the this meeting in Madrid was uh, about some technical issues, working out the rules of carbon markets and some other uh, technical rules, but people were hoping that there would be a good signal for next year. So if it's regarded as a failure, is there a culprit uh, behind this. Now, I mean, immediately, of course, up today being the day of the impeachment hearings, I, my, my mind goes to one person. We're not technically yet out of the Paris Agreement, right? Right. That can't happen until election, uh, after, after the election. Right. Is that correct? 
Uh, right. By, by the rules of the agreement, uh, you know, Trump announced that they were going to withdraw a, a few months ago, and it doesn't take effect until right after the election. We did send a delegation, though, right? Right. So we have uh, State Department officials, people who have always been involved in this, who are who are there. But the American presence is much was much lower than it has been in the past. So at, at Paris, there was a U.S. pavilion, a lot of action. And I think more importantly, you know, what happened in advance of Paris was that in the year, the two years leading up to Paris, the U.S. and China orchestrated some major announcements that uh, about what each country planned to do. And that helped create the momentum and uh, created the platform for everyone else to get on board. This this time around, there was a lot of uh, just dissension and, mm-hmm. and no common thread of agreement that sort of emerged out of it. And uh, you know, for, I, I'm not able to go into the rooms, negotiating rooms, but the news you hear coming out of it is that the ma- major emitters, the U.S. and China apparently were uh, opposed to language about more ambition. Uh, that's really a pity. Now, ahead of, of Glasgow next year, there is this summer the EU-China summit in Leipzig. Uh, and I, some people, I remember reading a BBC report on this, are pinning hopes on that so that China and the EU can come to, you know, analogously uh, to to what Obama and Xi Jinping came to in 2014 ahead of Paris. They, they hammered out a climate agreement. Is that uh, something that you're holding out hope for? Yeah, so I, I think that would be uh, one positive way that this could go in that we're, we're going to need to hear announcements well in advance of the meeting in, at the end of next year. And so that's one opportunity. I think the EU wants to step up and uh, and hopefully they, they will. But we right now we don't know exactly what will come come of that. So, I mean, we're, we're mainly focusing in this podcast, of course, on, on Chinese attitudes. Um, I think most of our, our listeners are probably aware that China is now the biggest carbon emitter and that by cumulative emissions, still China hasn't caught the U.S. Uh, China used to be pretty adamant about being regarded uh, as less culpable because it had low per capita emissions. Yeah. But even that is really no longer the case, right? I mean, that... Yeah, so it, it's worth talking about this debate about responsibility. I mean, what what one of the things that's going on at these meetings is is an argument over who's responsible, who should take the, the burden of doing this, right? right? So the developing country argument, including the argument from China, is that uh, the U.S. and Europe are largely responsible for historical emission. That's that's what matters, right? This is a cumulative thing in the atmosphere that contributes to, to uh, climate change. And, um, and so the developing countries say, look, you guys did it. You need to uh, cut more than us. You need to provide money so that we can... Uh, cut ourselves and we can adapt to the harm that's sure to come from sea level rise, from uh, extreme weather and these all these things that we know are coming because of climate change. And so uh, and the developed countries are uh, naturally are resistant to that because it's it's money. It's, it's tremendous amounts of money. It's a, a lot of responsibility for these countries. So so what China will say is that uh, the U.S. and Europe are uh, the most responsible because of their historical admissions. But of course, the situation with China is that uh, these days are by far the largest emitter in absolute emissions. And as you mentioned, in terms of per capita, 10 years ago, the argument was, look, each Chinese person emits much less than every American. That's unfair to require us to do as much as you. 
that seems to be Americans or uh, Europeans taking their uh, an unfair share of the the budget left. But these days, China's emissions now have uh, surpassed uh, per capita on a per capita basis uh, European emissions. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that we have to also keep in mind in the discussion is the, the way that emissions are are measured right now is by country. But of course, trade matters, right? A lot of the emissions produced in China are for consumption in the US and Europe and Japan and the developed countries. But at the same time, as China has gotten wealthier, they are now going through the same process that the developed countries did, which is sort of exporting emissions. Right. right. So, so uh, we can talk about that later. But uh, with Chinese outbound investment, a lot of the emissions of Chinese people are now being uh, sent outside. So, so I think the the responsibility argument is very fraught. This is why there's often very slow progress in the, the negotiations. But the long and the short of it is that China needs to reduce its emissions, right? Yeah. Because in order to solve the problem, all the best science shows that we need to have massive cuts in the near future. So in the next 10 years, massive cuts going towards basically neutrality, carbon neutrality towards 2050. So if you imagine that's 30 years from now. Yeah, that's a, mere 30 that's years. A, ma- a major transition in 30 now, years. Is China as insistent as it used to be about transfers, about uh, being treated as a developing country? Or has their, has their tone changed somewhat? Are they more willing to pony up and uh, less insistent on, on, on being treated? Yeah, so so the the Chinese position has changed dramatically in the last ten years. So I, I was at the Copenhagen meeting with uh, my colleagues at NRDC at that time, and if you recall, Copenhagen was a very contentious meeting. Oh yeah, uh, China was uh, very uh, aggressive on uh, pushing these arguments about who was responsible, really saying that that the U.S. and others were uh, should take a larger share. Uh, but after that meeting, you know, that meeting was largely viewed as a failure. A lot of blame was placed on China. And I think since then, the Chinese climate program, the climate policy program has really matured dramatically. And it's for a variety of reasons. And, and China's very straightforward about this in their official documents on this. Why are they doing it? They say that it's because uh, they know that China will be affected by climate change. They know it's good for their economy. China now is anticipating this sort of economic transformation from in, an industrial society to sort of a post-industrial society. And as as we know, you know, air pollution, environmental degradation, all of these things have reached sort of crisis levels at China. So all of those things drove a change in China. If you look at the the, the climate policy program, whereas 10 to 15 years ago, it was a hodgepodge of pre-existing programs. Mm -hmm. These days, it's a very uh, mature, sophisticated blend of really all of the components that uh, anyone would say that you need in order to tackle climate change. And I think the, the big question now is, can we get China to be more ambitious, to move faster, uh, and to move more decisively. So it's a different story, obviously, than uh, in the U.S., where uh, you have many people in the U.S. Uh, saying the same thing, uh, wanting to decarbonize. But of course, with Trump and the federal government, they are doing sort of everything in their power to, to thwart that and to move uh, in the opposite direction on climate change. 
just now you talked about how given the interconnectedness of, of our global trading system and that you know China is shouldering so much of the manufacturing for the world, maybe a country-based emissions metric isn't the best. What What is the alternative to that? Is it a consumption-based metric or what, what do you... Yeah, so I, I don't know what the, you know, I think a country based is still the way it's going to be for, for mm. the future, but I, I raise it only to, uh, for, for really two reasons. I think it's worth raising because it tempers some of the, uh, the, the, the tone of the debate, sort of suggesting, you know, in the past when I was saying, look, it's all China, I think the U.S. and Europe had to accept some, accept some responsibility that some of those emissions were partly the responsibility of, of the developed countries. However, it of course is still mainly the responsibility of the country that's right. emitting them, right? But but likewise, as China starts to go out, there's a lot of responsibility for the countries that are now becoming the homes of the emissions. But China also likewise has some responsibility to try to control that because that's part, partly uh, Chinese consumption. But as an accounting matter, I think it's going to be country-based for... Yeah, I, I do want to talk about um, what initiatives like the Belt and Road uh, are doing in terms of China's outsourcing carbon emissions. But first, um, I guess the, the, the reason that I wanted, I thought that it would be a good idea to, to have this this conversation right now is that over the last few years, I think I've been reading a lot of reporting that was fairly sanguine about uh, China's progress. There were there was a lot. I mean, in a, a sea of otherwise very negative reporting on yeah. China, at least you would see you know uh, people making the claim that China was really in the lead on a few key issues. For example, on on renewables, uh, that they had uh, it was basically because of the China price that uh, we had is significantly reduced the the cost to produce a kilowatt hour of solar or or, or uh, wind. Uh, but recently that has really shifted. We're seeing a lot of reports now about how China is now actually firing up more coal-fired power plants and that emissions are not decelerating right. as they were. At the same time, um, China is still doing you know well in other ways. G- give us the balance sheet, uh, I, yeah. a rundown of, of where China's leading and where China's right. lagging. Right. So in, in the run-up to Madrid, we saw a number of uh, media reports on kind of this question of is China a climate leader or a laggard. I, I think that debate was always a little bit overblown. I think it's hard to say that you're a climate leader when you are emitting a third of the carbon emissions sure. in the world, right? So, But what that debate was highlighting was that China both uh, was contributing to the problem in, in many ways, but also had... Uh, sort of directionally moved in the right direction on policy and also in some major ways was playing a transformative role. And I'll talk about those. So I think on the the good side of the balance sheet, I think um, China's actions on renewable energy and electric vehicles have been arguably transformative. Right. Mm. So um, if you want to talk about what we need to do to decarbonize, right? So um, Two of the major things are where do we get our energy, mm-hmm. and second is transportation. How do right? we get so transportation is largely oil, right? And um, and then energy, it's been powered by coal in the U.S. now increasingly natural gas, but still fossil fuels, right? So um, on the renewable energy side, you really need to move to wind, solar, you know, hydro is part of the mix, but essentially non-fossil sources of energy. And on the wind and solar front, for example, China has been by far the largest uh, um, sort of producer and investor in uh, renewables over the last few years. And their actions on renewables have led to dramatic 
price decreases on wind turbines, on solar um, panels, on batteries, these types of things. And that is um, not only good for China, but good for the world, right? right. I, I recently installed uh, solar on my house, mm-hmm. and the price of it uh, compared to some of my colleagues who did it a few years ago is probably about half oh, wow. what they paid uh, just a few uh, years ago. And so, so are, that, are China's contributions just in production or implementation as well? And they're so. also installing a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of renewable capacity. So China is just a large place, so the numbers always tend to be impressive. But if you think of China's renew, uh, renewable installed capacity right now is larger than the entire energy capacity of Japan. It's three to four times German, Germany's entire uh, energy, energy capacity. capacity, right? just in renewables. And so, you know, again, partly that's just because China is a large place. But on, a, on an absolute measure, China is an enormous um, user of, of renewable energy. And so that matters a lot. And then also on the electric vehicles front, the other thing that we really need to do is to electrify or at least move away from fossil fuels for transportation. Right. right? So, for example, in California right now, really to meet its um, air pollution and climate targets, largely by 2050, the plans suggest that all sales of vehicles at that point are electric vehicles. By 2050. We don't know if we'll get there, but that's what people say is needed in order to um, meet the targets. And right now, China has become the largest um, uh, market for electric vehicles with about 45% of the electric vehicles in the world. Right, Europe and the U.S. are uh, you know, a little less than a quarter uh, each. But China, by far, is is the leader on that. There have been headwinds, though, recently, because they're starting to pull back on some of the subsidies. And just a few months ago, the sales year-on-year of EVs dropped by something like 45%. I think um, the analysts that I've read say, you know, in part, it's trying to uh, thin out the the market right now. There's you know everyone and his brother jumped into the market, right. and now you're trying to reduce subsidies, and so that it's you the dropping subsidies out. that seems to have been right. We, yeah. But hopefully it'll weed We're out some of the the, the fly by night companies, and then you get the better uh, champions uh, staying uh, in the game. But on on those two fronts, those are tremendous uh, contributions to climate change. At the same time, those markets very much tie into the tensions between the U.S. and China. There are trade complaints on, uh, you know, sort of subsidies for these these markets. You know, the complaints that illegal subsidies for, uh, but it, from the um, environmental perspective, uh, it's it's nothing but but good. Um, I want to ask you about why it is that these coal power plants are, are starting up again, and I think that does tie to the trade war. But first, yeah. uh, while we're still on electric vehicles. Uh, has China had the same sort of impact on the price for core components of of, of EVs um, that they've had in solar and in wind? I mean that they, that's one of the main things that the, have has China uh, brought battery prices down in particular. Yeah, so I I I'd have to double check that. I think it's not as dramatic yet, but I think um, you know I I, th- I think it would be uh, what would happen once you get more uh, further expansion of those markets. Yeah, so. it's just the sheer scale of it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's impressive. Right, but so so that's the good side, right? But on on the the worrisome side is that uh, there's evidence that China's building. Uh, more coal plants right now, uh, you know, at a time where you really need to see drops in coal. So, so China's, the share of coal in the energy mix is dropping, right? So the percentage of coal in the energy mix has dropped below 60% for the first time. It was over it used to be in the set, you know, 70 yeah. to 80%. Yeah. 
Um, and, and that's because gas and uh, renewables and other other types of things are are increasing. But you've also seen in, uh, investment in new coal-fired power plants, so uh, rather substantial amounts of new coal-fired power, and that's that's not a good thing because. Uh, investors in those will want to use those resources, and right. it's going to be hard to uh, reduce coal if you're building new uh, new capacity. And what seems to be driving it is uh, stimulus, right? So uh, mm. what people what seems to be going on is well, th- there's two things. There's the new construction in coal-fired power plants, but also just in, uh, you know upticks in coal use in general. So what's going on? It seems to be in part. Uh, stimulus that, and, and you know the the age old need of local officials to sort of uh, stoke GDP. So one of the ways they're doing it is is approving new power plants, but also investment in real estate seems to be driving demand for steel and cement and these types of things. And those are all Very you know, high heat yeah. heavy, heavy industry that needs coal and uh, generates a lot of uh, carbon emissions. And so uh, you know why why is that happening uh you know we we chatted earlier a little bit about the potential role of the the trade war right and you know we've already seen that china's gdp growth is slowing anyway but certainly the trade war is putting more pressure on that and uh that instability uh is is not helpful for uh environmental goals for sure these new plants that are coming online is there any silver lining to them i mean are they at least more efficient are, are they <laughs> so it's possible I, yeah i haven't looked at the specific plans but it, you know the trend has been that when the new ones get built within china uh they are uh efficient so if what's going on is that they are uh shutting down older uh bat, more backward technology which there have been some orders from the center to for for example the major central state owned enterprises to shut down heavily indebted kind of marginal uh properties so on balance you know there there may be some offsetting of this new capacity but new capacity at a time when the existing capacity is underutilized uh, doesn't make any sense from an energy planning perspective. So there, there's no no real good silver lining to this. Does nuclear figure in at all in any meaningful way in China's energy mix right now? And is there are there plans on the on, on the books to increase that? Yeah, there there has been some uh, uh, growth in nuclear, but it's uh, I think moderated in part by what happened in Japan with Fukushima. And mm-hmm. I personally would be worried about about that. I think sure. it's not the most uh, efficient way to generate energy, especially right now. You have solar and wind. The the prices of those coming to parity with uh, explain what you mean by parity. Just the price of it has dropped, right? So it used to be more expensive. You know, one of the the knocks against renewables was that it's expensive, right? right? You might build it, and sure, it's great for the environment, but it's expensive. But now it's getting cheaper and cheaper, and um, you know, I I think it'll be uh, something that should be competitive with any other type of energy. So, um, nu- nuclear, you know, I'm not an expert in nuclear, but it um, I don't create to see it being uh, a major piece of the right, pie right. going forward. There are some countries where it's a pretty substantial piece of the energy. Uh, France, sure. for France, example, for example, right? example right. yeah. Okay. Let's, get, let's get to the Belt and Road and, and other outbound investment um, f- from China and, and what's, what that's actually uh, doing. What has been the carbon impact of, of BRI uh, and other major investments? Yeah, so th- there are now um, a number of studies coming out. Uh, there was recently a very good report by the World Resources Institute on this. Um, 
basically identifying that a lot of the energy sector outbound investment from from China was uh, for investment in fossil fuels, and and a lot of the uh, power plants that were being invested in were of uh, less advanced technology. Mm. So. Uh, the conclusion of the WRI report was that this was just completely inconsistent with Paris goals and that it would lock in for the foreseeable next few decades a increasing sort of carbon emissions trajectory. And if, if you recall, in order to meet the goals within the international agreements, we're talking about trying to move to carbon neutrality by 2050 or 2070, you know, depending on which uh, estimates you look at. And so you, you really... Uh, the disconnect between what's needed to combat climate change and what seems to be uh, going on in investment trajectories could not be greater right now. Uh, that's just depressing. Uh, is it on the recipient countries or is it on China? Um, so I think I think it's both, right? So the, uh, there's ev- evidence. Um, Kelly Sims Gallagher at, at Tufts has mm-hmm. done some research that uh, showed the um, fossil fuel investments were often uh, an ask from the, you know, there's a pull from the the host countries, the the developing countries that are getting the investment are asking for fossil fuels, and the companies in China are obliging by by providing the uh, the product. Uh, but you know, Chinese uh, financing is involved, and uh, that's a place where they can make pledges to not provide funding for uh, fossil fuel uh, uh, investments, and so. I, I think uh, it's it's on both sides, but so so it, you know clearly you can do it's it's a little bit easier to concentrate your efforts in Beijing and try to get uh, uh, several major banks uh, and major companies to make pledges. Once you go out into the world, then you're talking about dozens of, of countries. Right, you know, right, it's much right. more difficult. And I mean, what's since we are looking now at at, at parity pricing and and the actual capital outlays for a, a solar installation aren't you know, crippling compared to... Uh, can't China say, hey, can I interest you in some wind or solar instead? I yeah, mean, I think that would be the idea. So I, I think uh, hopefully the uh, direction is that uh, country, developing countries around the world can be convinced that the, the path to development is through uh, more use of renewable energy, that you don't need to... I think there's some idea among developing countries that the the path is the one that China went through, which is pollute first and then deal with it later. And then right. when you're rich, then you can move. This is not an option. And now. So uh, now uh, that's completely, again, inconsistent with the um, what we need to do on, on climate change. And so, but, you know, it, this is a place where, you know, links directly with the discussions in the, in the international climate uh, negotiations, which is, Will the developed countries help these these countries? So, uh, you know, there may be a picture where um, uh, co- companies from the developed countries get involved, and they you know they can sort of make some money by providing these technologies, but also with some support from uh, uh, you know subsidies and assistance to help these developing countries. Uh, make it more affordable for them. So, Alex, part of the reason that that uh, I'm here and you know doing these these podcasts out of California is I'm really interested in the way that the state of California is cooperating with China. Uh, you know, in this administration, I mean, this is one of the things that I think a lot of people who I, I talk to have noticed attitudes about cooperation with China are shifting because 
the Trump administration is so at war with Beijing that state capitals are taking up a lot of the slack. Uh, and I think that's probably nowhere more pronounced than in the state of California. And one of the things I'm really interested in is what um, is the initiative that under former Governor Jerry Brown was started and that Gavin Newsom has really continued to pursue yeah. uh, with China right now. So can you talk about you're You're involved, or, or yeah. your institution's right. involved right. Uh, in this initiative. Uh, can you talk about it a little bit, what UCLA is doing with the sure. systems? Yeah, so I, I think in general... Um, and this has been going on for quite a number of years that there's been a lot of cl- collaboration uh, between California and China, right? So as uh, Governor Brown used to love saying, uh, California is the fifth largest economy uh, in the world. A major player, uh, Governor Brown, was uh, very present at the Paris conference uh, in 2015. And so uh, what California is trying to do on climate change is very similar in in concept to what China now is is trying to do right, and so there's efforts to uh, reduce reliance on carbon in, intensive fuels and a very elaborate set of plans to deal with climate change uh, and air pollution and, and other uh, related uh, problems. So there's been a lot of sharing on, in the energy sector on uh, wind and solar technology, on governance, on environmental law, uh, these types of things, and so. Um, one of the initiatives is uh, this initiative that Governor Brown launched after just uh, going to China and meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, which is uh, it's, it's called the California-China uh, Climate Change Institute. It's based up at Berkeley, but it's a UC-wide initiative that involves uh, us at UCLA and, uh, and uh, uh, folks at Davis who do a lot of work on transportation, mm-hmm. uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs, uh, and, and others. And in some ways, it's a continuation of the types of things that have been going on for a long time and taking advantage of the expertise in California, both in the universities and in Cal EPA. You know, Cal EPA has, I, I believe, more than 2,000 uh, staffers working on... It's probably bigger uh, than the climate. federal... Uh, no, it's not bigger than the federal. Federal <laughs> has, you know, 17,000. Okay. It, it did yeah. bef- before the, you know, the, the Trump administration, but... Um, and uh, they're doing incredible work. You know, they have uh, uh, they are a world leader, really, on uh, carbon cap and trade, on trying to electrify the um, uh, transportation sector, trying to reduce amount of carbon and fuel, and these types of things. And so, you know, I, I think it's not enough because you really need to have the U.S. federal government involved. Right. right? It's not sufficient to have a combative anti-climate change federal government uh, next to uh, a major state, even if California is the fifth largest economy in the, in the world. You know, th- that the work that we and, and a lot of others are, are, are doing in California is trying to sort of keep things moving uh, while there's this hopefully an interregnum in the, the federal uh, context. But given the magnitude of the problem, it is, is completely uh, not enough. So, I mean, the, the types of projects that we're doing and others are doing, you know, we're, we're right now doing work on uh, air pollution and climate uh, co-control. So uh, California has for a long time been thinking about how do you deal with both of these problems in the most efficient way, right? There's a lot of overlap, uh, tra- good transportation policy deals with air pollution and climate and change. Climate, right. And what's ap- appealing to the Chinese side about that is that the political momentum for air pollution is just stronger, right? right. Because it's much more in your face, as you know. In and your so, lungs. <laughs> right. So, so people, and people want that to be solved. So if you can uh, 
be smart about the planning of that, you can kind of maximize the benefit to both, right? So obviously renewable energy, if you're not, if you have less uh, power coming from uh, coal-fired power plants, that's also both good for climate change and for air pollution. And there's lots of different ways that um, that California right now is trying to plan to do that better. China also, you know, in their official plan, they talk about cocoa control. This idea is is in the mix in China, but I think it's this idea that uh, I, I like the positioning that says, look, both sides have not completely figured out how to deal this pro- with this problem, and they're working together to try to try right. to solve it. So, What sorts of things that California has been doing is China particularly attracted by, aside from things like co-control? Um, for example, are they looking at uh, the, the carbon credit trade market? So the, the carbon markets, that's, that's a, a second project that it looks like we'll be uh, getting involved in. So... Uh, California has had a, a cap and trade uh, system, carbon cap and trade system for a number of years. And China, they, they've officially launched it, but it hasn't really gotten going yet. Uh, they officially launched it in 2017. And the announcement was that it would be primarily for the power sector, but they're still working out the rules right now. And, and I believe next year we'll really commence uh uh, the, the active uh, trading. And immediately then China becomes one of the major markets in, in the, the world. Well, one thing that's been uh, a little bit misunderstood in the media presentation of the China market is that what they're trading, it's, it's, uh, the China system is actually not a cap and trade system. Mm-hmm. And they're very open about this. It's actually a tradable performance standard, meaning what you're trying to do is improve the efficiency of power plants um, so technically there's no cap because if a power plant at the end of the year has just produced more, they get actually more credits. Basically, they just have to sort of meet a certain efficiency amount of carbon per unit of power emitted, whereas California is actually a cap. It's understandable in some ways in a, a economy that's still growing as fast as China, but Obviously, this is something, even in the plans and the researches that we worked with at, at Tsinghua, the idea is that uh, you know, they would like to see down the road a, a hard cap on this, but it's not part of China, official Chinese uh, policy yet. And say so the media has gotten, uh, I mean, I, I've seen misreporting about the carbon credit market in China. I mean, people actually saying there is one when there, there hasn't been. Um, we were talking earlier about um, media reportage on the sort of leader laggard question. Yeah. Uh, where do you think maybe we, we you ought to correct the record a bit? Yeah, well, on on the the carbon market reporting, there there have been pilots at the provincial and city level for the last since since 2013. So there have been uh, local level pilots. There has mm-hmm. not been a national emissions trading system that that's really just getting right. uh, going. And and what we hope to uh, do some work with with Tsinghua. So you know, on the on the leader laggard question, I, I think the question is a little bit beside the point. In part, there's a little calling China a, a leader was also impo- premature. Yeah. <laughs> well, in part, it was to sort of uh, try to shame Trump for right. pulling back, right? To say, look, you're missing out on an opportunity because China does see an advantage in trying to build its renewable industry, its EV industry, these types of things. That's good for China's economy, right? And uh, the U.S., at least from the federal perspective, now is just saying, "Look, we don't. We're not going to compete there. We're going to try to maintain the line on what, you know, sort of the strong industries, the oil industries, the auto industries of the past, right?" Um, and so, I, I think with China, 
what's good is that the policy is directionally correct. I think what is insufficient right now, as it is in the U.S. and in Europe, is the level of ambition, right? Mm-hmm. Both, all mm-hmm. countries need to, to go much, much more aggressively uh, towards uh, decarbonizing. And so in that sense, China is, is a laggard in that the planning is insufficient right now. But it, it is good that they're not denying that climate change is real. It's good that they're not you know, uh, trying <laughs> to roll back climate Trump, policy, right? these yeah. types of things. But, but as we see from the power plant stuff, there uh, is uh, insufficient implementation, right? So the right. policy can be directionally good, but it doesn't matter if Shandong province is, is permitting power plants and not shutting them down when they're told to, and then that is allowed to continue, right? So as we, uh, we've got a year before COP26, I suppose, in, in, in Glasgow, what are some optimistic and pessimistic scenarios going into that next, uh, that next meeting? Well, so, you know, from the U.S. perspective, a lot will turn on the election. If, if yeah. Trump wins again, then we're going to have four more years of, of no. And we'll really be out of Paris. Policy. Yeah. And we'll actually be out of Paris. Um, in, in the same way that we were out of the Kyoto Protocol, you know, State Department officials will continue to be observers at these meetings, but they won't be a, a member of the Paris Agreement, right? They won't actively be involved. Uh, and so uh, I think for uh, environmental purposes, there there has to be uh, a, a Democratic president, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what's going on with China, what I would love to see, China's in the middle of doing their, their next five-year plan. So... Um, there's a lot of research going on, a lot of ideas being bandied about uh, in both directions, right? There's some people saying that we want to increase the, the coal cap, uh, allow for some more coal, you know, that's good for energy security, that's good for the economy, these types of things. Uh, but it's it's terrible for climate change policy, right? right? And so hopefully what we'll see in the next five-year plan is ambitious targets, to more aggressively move towards what China has already said is its stated goal, which is economic transformation, moving away from heavy industry and uh, doing uh, what they're calling eco-civilization and greening the economy. So all the pieces are are there, and uh, there are a lot of players who are actively supporting these things. But, um, you know, there's been a sort of one step forward, two steps back uh, so far. It's clear that consciousness about air pollution is is you know very high in China right now. What about climate change? I mean, are they reacting, for example, to these new reports about Shanghai being partially underwater? And yeah, uh, do you feel like popular consciousness about climate change uh, is is increasing? Was China reporting on Greta Thunberg uh, and and Climate Week in yeah. New York? So I think I think people in general in in, in China are um, supportive of climate change. You know, there were some polls that uh, were uh, a high percentage of Chinese people said they'd be willing to pay a little bit more to uh, to uh, deal with climate change. Um, but you know th- that there's a difference between your belief and your behavior, right? Sure. It's it's hard to change individual behavior, right? As China is becoming a higher, you know, wealthier, higher consuming uh, nation, uh, people's actions are inconsistent with climate change. But I think think the biggest thing that has to happen is at the policy level, because if you have wholesale changes in where the energy is coming from, uh, what types of uh, vehicles are available on the market, then it makes it easier for people to make the right individual choices, right? That's how you make the wholesale change at the speed that you need. 
At the level of macroeconomics, is the rebalancing underway in the Chinese economy moving away from an investment-driven, export-manufacturing-driven economy and more toward a domestic consumption-driven economy? Is that good for carbon emissions or bad? Oh, so yeah, if that happens, it's uh, uh, it's uh, definitely good for carbon emissions, right? I, you know, I tell my students uh, at the law school that they are a high GDP, low carbon emissions industry, right? So they right. are each one of them goes out to a law firm. They uh, produce a lot of uh, generate a lot of income without producing. Uh, uh, as much uh, uh, carbon, and then you can insert your lawyer joke about hot air right there. But, <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, if you actually move away from steel and cement and these types of things, obviously, you know, the, the, the services industries are much less uh, yeah. carbon intensive. I imagine that was the case. Just wanted to make sure. So, Alex, it's just been fantastic talking to you about this. It's uh, um, as depressing as a topic as it is. I think it's really great to have some some light shed on this. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. But first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca Network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is still just chock full of great reads on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Jeremy, Lucas, Anthony, Jiayun, they all work really hard to bring you this product, and it is terrific value for money. Check it out. Sign up. Spread the word. Okay. Recommendations, man. Alex, what do you have for us? Okay. So I, I'm going to um, give two. So oh, great. at Ma Madrid last uh, uh, week, this is a sort of a shout out to a, a University of California colleague. Um David Victor down at UCSD, UC San Diego, mm -hmm. uh, launched a report called Accelerating the Low Carbon Transition. It was commissioned by the UK uh, government. And it looks like a great, uh, I'm in the middle of looking through it, but it looks like a great report that has sort of very uh, granular steps as to how you get from here to there. So I think uh, it's it's very important when we there's a lot of coverage for the activists calling for more ambition, but we also need a lot of work on exactly how we get there. This is right. a great report if you're interested in knowing what needs to be done. It shows a lot of positive things like in areas of energy and transportation, we actually have uh, ways to get there. But a lot of other areas like like aviation and these types of things, we are still at the very beginning of figuring out how to decarbonize. So that's that's one. Uh, and I would be remiss uh, to not give a shout out to my own UCLA colleague. So my colleague Ted Parson um, at UCLA has the third edition of his book, The Science and Politics of Global Climate Change, a book he did with Andrew Dressler. And it talks, uh, it's a great overview about both the science of climate change and the politics of it and the negotiations mm. in the international context. So that's a, a good read if you want to find out uh, more about that. Oh, it's great. I mean, mine were going to be completely frivolous uh, in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I went off topic. I mean, I was, but um, I, a friend of mine turned me on to this Netflix uh, series from Russia. It's called Trotsky. It's this little eight part mini series. Uh, it's terrific. It's a sort of a biopic, very um, salacious, you know, his, affair with Frida Kahlo in Mexico and um it starts I mean there's 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 it's you know it's it's R-rated I, I suppose but it's quite good it's subtitled quite well in English uh, you know Trotsky comes up you know very much larger than life uh all these the usual cast of characters in it um I'm still only you know on episode three or four um you know the uh 
the uh, Kronstadt rebellion has just happened. Uh, Kerensky's regime is still in power. Uh, but it's fascinating. It's not historically accurate necessarily. Don't yeah. count on it for that. But um, pretty different from Isaac Deutscher's trilogy about Trotsky. But I recognize the man all the same. Uh, check it out. <laughs> it's it's a pretty fascinating thing. Okay. Thanks, Alex. What are you right. watching on Netflix these days? What, you got any good TV shows? What, what? Uh, so I, I've been watching The Watchmen. I'm, oh, is I, it great? I, I need to watch the last episode still, but it, that's been great. I won't spoil it for you. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I I love Lindelof. I think he's just yeah. a really, I mean, did you see The Leftovers? I, I didn't see that, but yeah, this, is, this has been good. a great show. Yeah. The, guy, the guy knows yeah. how to make really, I tell a really good story. Yeah. Terrific story. Yeah, terrific. I recommended it actually uh, a couple of weeks ago. Okay. All right, man. All right. Thanks good. a lot. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out the other podcasts in our network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.